Welcome to the World of Wisdom podcast. My name is Ahmed Paul, and uh, today I get to speak to, uh, hmm, I don't know how to introduce you, Joel, um, but, but I'm going to let you introduce yourself. But welcome to the podcast, Joel Tickner. Thank you, Ahmed. Um, so I'm Joel Tickner. I'm a professor of public health at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell. But uh, the way I know you, Amit, is through the Green Chemistry and Commerce Council, um, an organization I helped found in 2005. It's a, a business association of about 100 companies and others along the value chain focused on driving the growth of green and sustainable chemistry across the value chain and across sectors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We've been nerding on, on chemistry, and that's part of my my uh, a part of my life that's taking less and less time at the moment uh, but nonetheless it's it's the part that i've been working with flame retardants and sustainable chemistry use in flame retardants um i usually start well i'll i'll, I'll stick to the <laughs> to the, stick to the schedule i, I usually start with the, the very light question of uh, also widening it a little bit you gave us a little bit of the bio background for why we're talking together today um, and I'm hoping that we'll touch on, on chemistry in general and, and like what are chemicals and how are they used and how are they used in products and should we be worried about them? How worried should we be about them and stuff like that? We'll get to those things. Um, so I, I usually introduce uh, or let people introduce themselves with the question of who are you? So who are you, Joel Tickner? Who am I? That's a really good question. And I, I often tell my students how I got to be where I am. And it's a combination of uh, luck, serendipity, and, and, and a focus on health. I always wanted to be a doctor. So I did my undergraduate degree in, um, in uh, well, actually in Spanish literature, um, partly because <laughs> I was, I was really good at Spanish. And, um, less good at the sciences, but I loved science. I always wanted to help people. And so I, I was pre-medicine and then I went and spent uh, what, what was going to be a half a year in Spain to perfect my Spanish, uh, learn Spanish art, culture. And I ended up spending a year there and I decided I didn't want to be a doctor anymore. And I came back to the United States and I took a class, uh, two classes actually, one in environmental science and one in environmental economics that was taught by Professor Tom Titenberg, who wrote the book on environmental economics and really inspired me to say, well, I, I loved always being outdoors, hiking, biking, and uh and I loved health, so what about doing something around the environment? So I ended up uh, going back to Spain for a couple of years to work and then went and did my master's at the University of Montana. And just by luck, I arrived at the University of Montana at the same time as two of my mentors, Bruce Jennings, who had been the senior staffer on the California Senate working on environment and chemicals, and Mary O'Brien, who had been the chair of the board of the Pesticide Action Network. And um, they brought me into this world of chemistry, of, of the problems of chemistry. But also, Mary O'Brien wrote a book called Making Better Environmental Decisions, an alternative to risk assessment, where she essentially talked about the fact that most of our science is used to figure out how bad everything is. And we make these false choices between bad options rather than focusing on what's better, what's safer. And by focusing on what's safer, what's better, it gives hope. It gives you a direction to think about it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to live with toxic things in our world. We can actually focus on on, on better chemistry or better alternatives. So 
I finished my master's work and um, Mary had introduced me to my PhD mentor, Ken Geyser, at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell, where I ended up going. And I now had a focus on environmental studies, environmental science, and pre-medicine. And I ended up doing a PhD focused on health sciences, environmental health, but also pollution prevention, because I realized that I could study problems forever and never get to solutions. And 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 so having that pollution prevention gave me a, a solutions lens to looking at chemical problems. Um, and the early part of my career, I actually did focus on studying problem chemicals, flame retardants in breast milk uh, or uh, phthalates and medical devices and toys. I negotiated with the toy industry to get phthalates out of toys um, working with Greenpeace. And again, you know, I'm 25. I'm in these negotiations with the toy industry about these problem chemicals. I, I, I knew the science. I studied the science. And, and the toy industry decided that phthalates weren't a problem and we were going to stick with it. They sided with the chemical industry. And here I am a disenfranchised 25-year-old saying, well, well, hold on here. These are dangerous chemicals and toys. What are they doing? And there were better alternatives and they chose not to. So I realized there was something standing in the way of getting towards better. And um, and that's where I started focusing my career is on how do we drive the better chemistry. And that led to a lot of work in this field of chemical alternatives assessment. How do we shift the science so that when we do have concerns about a chemical, we're not focusing just on spending 30 years figuring out how bad it is, because I'd seen that, but really mm -hmm. about what's better. And, um, and then the Green Chemistry and Commerce Council came out of a meeting where we were talking with companies about some of their challenges of responding to European policy initiatives like uh, the REACH initiative, reg registration, evaluation, and authorization of chemicals um, that came out in 2007. And um, we realized that companies really do want to solve problems and they're challenged in it and working together they might be much more effective in solving those problems together so so as i, I would say my my trajectory has been really focused on how do we take the knowledge about what makes chemicals problematic and leverage that knowledge to solve those challenges because in the end we can study it to get death but if we don't have a better alternative we're stuck mm. yeah would you label yourself an activist? Um, I, I think I'm an advocate. Um, I, 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 I'm a pragmatic person. Um, so as I've, I've learned over the years, so early in my career, I did work for advocacy groups. I, I, I remember in, you know, almost getting arrested a few times, right? Um, <laughs> I worked with Greenpeace. I worked with the public interest research groups. I did work in Louisiana supporting communities that have been contaminated by chemical plants. Um, and I, I, I feel like that's where I grew up and, and really wanting to change the world. Um, but as I started to learn more about the inner workings, I always thought the chemical industry was the reason, the problem. And as I learned more through the Green Chemistry and Commerce Council, what, I, what I've learned is it's a systematic problem, right? The chemical industry makes the chemicals, but all these downstream sectors buy the chemicals, and it's going to take a system to solve these challenges. It's not like there's an inherent evil in industry. Um, there, there's an economic um, incentive or an economic 
driver in industry, right? Um, a publicly traded company has to make its um, has to make its quarterly earnings, and that's what they're looking at. And if it's going to cost money, and no one's buying the alternatives, well, then they're stuck. So, so I would consider myself an advocate for change, um, not necessarily an activist. I think I've become much more pragmatic and and you know and sort of tempered in my approach that I, I, I do think there is a need for change from the inside. And, and that's what we've tried to do with the GC3 is really understand the industry much better to try and change the industry. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. I mean, that's, that's been the reason why we were pulled to the network um, quite early on and also like the activities that you run, but it was providing a window and an, and, uh, an access point into these large companies uh, in a different way uh, for a small company that's extremely valuable to find the right people reasonably fast and, and to have have some sort of you know assessment done on also your technology that somebody has an opinion that this looks you know valuable in, in one way or the other yeah. and then um, to to get to the table as well it's an important part. But, well, and the change is going to come from companies like yours, like Paximer and all the others in our startup network. It's not going to come from the, the larger companies, which have significantly reduced R&D over the last 30 years. Uh, you know, the great thing about the in world of innovators is they're, they're, they're nimble. They can take risks. They can, you know, try things that, that the larger strategics can't because they may not meet um, quarterly earnings or or whatnot. So, so there is a need for this innovator universe because in the end, I think you're bringing the solutions that they can bring to scale. Yeah. And so I'm wondering how to, because I'm hearing a lot of talk about the chemicals industry and typically um, it's pretty poorly understood, I would say. Uh, and we we decided for the purpose of this conversation to talk about chemicals and products. So so we're going to leave out um, some of the sort of pure pure chemicals and process chemicals and maybe some some agricultural stuff as well. And and but, but stick to the stuff that goes into products. Um, how would you how would you explain the chemicals industry to somebody that just average person on the street that that doesn't you know that read the newspaper and like follow along and see these like alarms of phthalates and, and like persistent chemicals and so forth. They, there's some, some awareness of that stuff. Um, you know, bisphenol A, maybe they've, they've read about and if they're in Europe, probably. And, um, but, but other than that, they don't really know. Like how, how would you explain like the very basics of it? Yeah, it's really hard because chemistry is a little abstract. It's not like solar energy, right? Where you see a solar panel or wind energy, you see a wind, it's an enabling industry. So there's some figures that, um, chemistry or chemical industry touches 96% of finished goods in the world. So, mm. you know, you think about pretty much every product we have is made out of chemistry from plastics to textiles to uh, electronics have chemistry, uh, pharmaceuticals have chemistry, right? So, so the chemical industry I see as an enabling industry. It's an enabling technology, much like nanotechnology is an enabling technology. Um, and it feeds from there into, uh, into materials and then ultimately into products, right? So you get a, a basic chemical, it goes into a material like a plastic, which then ends up going into a component in your car, for example. So it's very hard to think about, right? The chemical industry is very far from us. There are certainly chemical companies that make 
products. Um, 3M is one of them, or uh, BASF um, or Dow make certain products, but mostly you're not buying the products of the chemical industry. You're buying three steps down that production chain or four steps down that production chain. So they're very distant from the consumer, which then also leads to a lack of understanding about what consumers are worried about, what what they're concerned about. Um, retailers tend to see that. Brands tend to see that. So, So what we've tried to do in the GC3 is bring together those ends of the value chain so that they can better understand um, what, what, what are motivators, what are challenges, what are drivers. Um, for example, we had some conversations about five years ago or six years ago between chemical manufacturers and retailers. And what we found was they were talking past each other. Um, the, the chemical manufacturers thought all they had to do is just show that their numbers show that there's a very low risk from exposure to this chemical in this product and, and it's fine. And the retailer said, well, you know, it doesn't work that way. There's a social risk for us. We can't tell a consumer that it's okay for them to put a product in their child's hands that has a cancer causing chemical even in it, even if it's, even if it's safe, uh, it's a social risk that's too big. Um, so those the the chemical industry is so far from the consumer, and the consumer is so far from the chemical industry that there's really a lack of understanding. Um, and the the typical you know marketing scheme of better living through chemistry just doesn't necessarily educate the public enough for them to trust the industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm I'm thinking. I mean. I mean, in, to the the way that I tend to think about it is like chemistry is is a way of making a function available. So, like if you are doing outdoor stuff and you want a waterproof jacket, that's like then you would use chemistry to make that waterproof jacket, and you can do that in different ways. Um, you could maybe make um, you know something that is antibacterial uh, an antibacterial surface or like something like a non-stick surface that's also like examples of like things that chemistry would make possible that's want to kind of lay the foundation what are yeah. other other like things that yeah i mean chemistry that's a good way to put it and i often think about chemistry in terms of the function or the service that that chemical provides so for example benzene is a building block, right? Benzene is also a solvent. It uh, so it makes your gasoline flow better. It makes certain glues, um, you know, dry faster. Um, it uh, is also a building block chemical, right? It's the the you put benzene and you react it, and then you get styrene, right? And then you react styrene and put two styrene molecules or multiple styrene molecules together, and you get polystyrene plastic, right? So the monomer is a building block, but then certain chemicals are also, they also have a very specific purpose. So as you said, some provide antimicrobial properties, some provide durable water repellency, some uh, make solutions, um, you know, more uh, viscous. Uh, They all have a purpose. Um, There's about 150 functions, as we call them, of chemicals in the literature. And, you know, we typically don't make chemistry or we don't make chemicals except for academics they make chemicals just for making them but we typically don't make chemicals just to make them we make them because they provide a an important function um to make a product or a service that that we are in society wanting um so so that's that's the 
that's where chemistry provides a useful right it's the uh, i mean it's the the plastic that's in your safety uh in your helmet right it's the chemicals in your detergent right those are chemicals right we we often hear well i want chemical free cosmetics well cosmetics are are a mixture of chemicals um even if they're natural chemicals, right? We, we have natural chemistries um, and there's this mis- misperception that natural means safer. Um, natural doesn't always mean safer. Um, um, I can give lots of examples of that, but, but coming from nature may mean more compatible with biological systems. That's true. So, so I think you know, the way to think about chemistry is it's in everything we have. And you can think about the building blocks, right? I mean, the easiest way to think about chemistry for me is anything that's a liquid product. Your detergent is a bunch of chemicals mixed together with water, right? Your your pesticide that you're using around your house, right? Your your insect repellent. That's a that's a set of chemicals. Well, yeah. your your cough syrup is a set of chemicals mixed together, right? Those are all uses of chemistry. When you start talking about oh, my my blue jeans. It's harder to think about. Well, what are the chemicals in that? Well, the dyes, the the finishing chemicals, the ones that make the fabric, the 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 fibers uh, work together. Those are all chemistries. Those are, as you were saying, the processing chemistries. Um, or what you make, flame retardants. They they keep certain materials from from catching on fire. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so and then when we talk about because it's so easy then to 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 make the leap then to like to hazardous chemistry. So so when when we talk about hazardous chemistry, how do we what do we refer to really then? Like how how what is the definition of a hazardous chemical? Yeah, I mean the governments have those definitions. If you think under reach there are certain uh, and at globally there's what's called the globally harmonized system of classification and labeling which has a set of and these are this is globally through the United Nations system, there are certain types of hazards that make a chemical dangerous, whether oh. there, there's the more acute ones, like it it blows up, it's explosive, it's flammable, it's corrosive, it like burns you. Um, mm-hmm. Those are certain types of hazards are very close. We know them. Um, there's acute hazards that poison us, poisons us. We know that, right? Those those are the ones that most people think about, right? If uh, um, a dangerous chemical under your kitchen sink, if your child ingests it, they could die, right? Poison control. Yeah. We still see many children and others dying of acute poisoning from chemical exposures. And then we have you know, the chronic hazards, um, those would be things that could cause cancer, neurological disorders, um, could affect reproduction, um, could affect the respiratory system. All of those are different types of hazards. Um, and it's hard to say whether one is worse than the other, right? Um, they're all problematic. And I, I often say if we can't solve the most obvious ones like poisoning, it's really hard to solve the ones that are harder to prove in quotes because we can rarely prove that a chemical exposure led to cancer there's only a few chemicals we know of asbestos being one of them that we can definitively link asbestos exposure to a very specific type of cancer called mesothelioma for most chemicals we we don't know we 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 have um associations but we don't have causality it you know and that's a problem that most people don't understand that it's nearly impossible in the science to prove 
this this association between chemical exposure and disease. But so the hazardousness just depends. Um, and we tend to be more concerned about the types of hazards we know about. We know about acute poisoning. So we take care to lock our cabinets so our children can't get into it. Um, we don't think about the hidden hazards. Uh, for example, flame retardants in couches that may leach out when the foam in that couch breaks down or um Coatings in our pans, PFAS coatings, um, many people have heard about uh, PFAS or perfluorinated substances. These are uh, uh, chemical products that have a carbon-fluorine bond, which is an incredibly uh, stable bond that doesn't break down. So your Teflon pans, for example, um, may lead to exposure to certain um, chemicals that could be problematic. Mm. Yeah, those are those have been called the the persistent or the forever chemicals. Forever chemicals, right? Yeah. Um, I think that would make sense. But then, in terms of the industry, what what we are thinking a lot about is risk, which which is different to us than than the hazard. So you want to like just make that distinction, and then yeah, I mean, hazard is the intrinsic properties of a. Uh, chemical um, that lead to it being problematic. So for example, you might have a chemical that can cause in in a laboratory experiment uh, neurological disorders. Um, and yet, if we're not exposed to it, it doesn't pose a risk to us. Or, or you know, there, there's a saying in toxicology, which is the dose makes the poison. Um, you think about it when you're having alcohol, right? Um, a little bit of alcohol has little effect. And actually, there's some studies that show a little wine every day mm-hmm. is has a beneficial effect, but too much, you get drunk. And, and chemistry in general works that way. Not always, though. Certain chemicals, um, low-level low exposures, particularly during development um, that would be in the fetal stage or early childhood, can actually lead to lifelong impacts. And we've seen this, for example, there was a drug given to um, uh, to women in 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 pregnancy in the nineteen well, it was nineteen sixties and seventies. Well, we've seen it in several drugs that were given to women in pregnancy, where it led to uh, you know negative effects in their offspring. And, and drugs are typically given in low doses, um, yeah. and and they can have lifelong impacts later on. Um, so so it it isn't that you know, the dose always makes the poison. But typically we think about, you know, if you're not exposed, there's probably not a risk. Um, I tend to think about this because I have kids. I had to think about it. Did I take away all their their toys uh, because they might have phthalate exposure? No, I had to put it in context and say, I'm avoiding the biggest exposures I know to my kids. For example, not using pesticides around the home, um, avoiding dangerous chemicals in the cleaning products that we were we were using in the house. Um, but but trying to minimize the amount of overall exposure they had um, versus saying I I can get to zero exposure because you can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So because because then that's nice. So so we have like the different. Yeah, we have a little bit of a map here now, which has been like, now let's get into the, the risk assessment stuff. Because I, I think then, because it's easy to think then, why don't we just ban it all? Like, what, should, should we just take it all away and, and like uh, just live off of, like, 
and at the same time, what we've been saying here is like, that's not possible because it's there in 96% of, of product. Like that's way more than just your plastics. I mean, that's, that's all of it. Um, you're, in one way or another, you have chemical exposure through, I mean, it doesn't, I mean we had a, a huge issue in my previous house where we bought uh, a hardwood floor, um, which was put together. And we had extreme amounts of emissions from that that made my little girl really sick. Um, yeah. Lots of formaldehyde coming out of it. And that was a really high-grade quality, you know, hardwood floor that we bought. Um, but it was glued with formaldehyde. And that formaldehyde glue was not mixed properly, probably. That's what we think. So um, how do we... What, what, what is the... You talked about solutions. Like, what are the solutions? Like, what are directionally? I'm not asking you for the actuals. Right. Well, well, I think the starting point is to understand those intrinsic hazards of chemicals, right? And certainly governments um, like the European Union are saying we should be trying to avoid chemicals that have certain intrinsic hazards because ultimately at some point from the manufacturer to the ultimate disposal of that product, it's likely to get out into the environment. And so by eliminating those hazards, you eliminate the risk, right? So it, rather than trying to reduce risk by reducing exposure, because sometimes we don't control exposure. If you're thinking about a consumer product, um, like a cosmetic product or a cleaning product, you, it's a dispersive product, right? You're spraying it on your body, you're putting it in your home. There's not a lot of a way to control the exposure to that. So, so what we do is we try to reduce the hazard. Um, let me give you a, an example. Um, a lot of the floor finishing chemicals like on wood floors are highly flammable. And there were several incidents in the Massachusetts where uh, the floor finishers, um, primarily uh, Vietnamese immigrants um, who were undocumented, were were caught in, in fires. And some of them died. Some of them got serious injuries. And mm. you could say that the solution is let's educate these workers about the hazards of working with these chemicals. Well, one, they don't speak English. Two, they're undocumented. And if they raise any concerns about hazards in their workplace, they're likely to lose their jobs or get deported. So they're not going to take protect. And they work in you know, transient workplaces that don't really care. So the only way really to adequately protect them is to remove the hazard in the first place. And that's consistent with what we call the industrial hygiene hierarchy of controls eliminate the hazard to begin with, and then control it as a last resort because controls yeah. sometimes fail. Um, think about this in the context of a flame retardant in a computer screen, right? So it may be at the, in, the, in the use phase, like the computer screen on my desk, it's probably not emitting much in the way of, 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 of flame retardants. So for me as a consumer, I'm fine. But when that screen ends up in an open burn landfill in Ghana, which it probably will. Um, and, and you can't just say, oh, you know, it's safe and um, it's not, you know, we just need better recycling. Well, that's not, mm. yeah, we do need better recycling, but that's not the current situation. So you have to expect that it's going to get released into the air and into the water in Ghana when it gets burned or India or China. Um, and look at that. So you have to remove that hazard throughout the whole, um, throughout the whole cycle, or what we call the life cycle of a product from its manufacturer through its disposal. Um, same thing upstream in the apparel sector. Um, Greenpeace, in one of its best campaigns ever, 
took uh, started monitoring the water, the effluent of the factories making products for Nike, for Levi's, for Adidas, for all of these famous brands, and found they were turning rivers colors the way they turned rivers in Europe in the United States colors 100 years ago. That's just not acceptable. So those chemistries enter the factory and then they enter the clothing and they follow that whole beginning to end. Well, if we actually remove those chemistries in the first place, we're protecting the waterways in China and we're protecting wherever those fabrics end at the end of their lives. So so it really is about um, removing that hazard. There's a, a famous engineer in chemical engineering, Trevor Kletz, who used a great analogy, which I always loved. Um, um, he used the analogy of lions and lambs. Um, you, sure, you can have lions, um, but you have to have lots of safety systems around them and, you know, bells and whistles. And sometimes those lions get out. And when a lamb can do just as well, right? And lambs don't necessarily cause no damage. They can cause damage. They can denude hillsides, but it's a much more controllable damage than, than the lion causes. So, so it was interesting. This, this came up actually in a conversation. I was at a major chemical company and, and um, they got into this discussion with me about, you have to live with risk. Risk is okay. We can have dangerous chemicals and we can use them safely, just like we can enjoy lions in the zoo. And it turned out a lion had escaped a zoo in San Francisco a week before and killed someone. So, you know, it, it just, it happens, right? So um, the European Union is really focused on identifying those hazards that are of most concern and trying to make sure they don't enter the chemistry. So that would be things that are, can cause cancer, um, things right. that can cause mutations to genes, which then can lead to cancer things that cause uh, reproductive harm. But also important are things that persist in the environment, they stick around for a long time, or that bioaccumulate. They they build up in fatty tissue and build up through the food chain. And that's really important for countries that rely on fishing, like Sweden, Mm. where, Mm. where all of those chemicals build up and they go to northern latitudes and you find in fish in Sweden very high levels of certain chemicals. So, so the reason to focus on these hazards that they stick around or build up in the environment is that if we make a mistake on the science, we're stuck with them. So we take these uh, PFAS chemicals that are in water repellents and stain-resistant co- stain coatings or your Teflon pan. We're living with those for the next thousand years. They don't break down in the environment. That's why they're called forever chemicals. So we want to avoid problems in the future by by ensuring that you know, chemistry degrades effectively. So, so a whole set of hazards that we need to focus on um, and, and remove them. Because ultimately, if we can make chemistry that provides those essential functions, those really critical services, but not the harm, then we've hit the jackpot, right? The challenge is we made most of these chemistries, I mean, there's, not, there's not been a lot of innovation in chemistry over the last 30 years. Most of that innovation dates back to the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. And we weren't thinking about the environment or health when those chemistries were designed. We were thinking about their functionality, their performance. And now we're starting to say, hey, what about the environment and health and sustainability? And and maybe that needs to be an equal criterion with performance and with economics. Um, 
And we have a very different chemistry if that were the case. It's not that anyone intentionally made really dangerous stuff. Um, they made stuff that worked. And unfortunately, sometimes that stuff has problems associated with it. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's a really important distinction. I think that, that the focus was a bit different. And, and then one should also remember probably that we weren't using them as ubiquitously as we are doing right now. Right. Like we are, yeah. there's not as widespread. It was, you were doing maybe one product or a couple of products, like, and, and you know, that was a small market. And then it's, things started growing and like things started being used much more. And of course, there are probably different criteria as far as like exposure and like where they can go and, and all of that stuff. So that's, that's one aspect of it. Um, but then the second part of it, I mean, that's still, I think a little bit of the amazement from my side is that we aren't, we haven't been paying attention to some of the, cause some of the things are just obvious, like just so blatantly obvious that like, it's just a failure of, I mean, it's not even, it's just, you have to focus really hard to not use your imagination to realize where some of the things would have ended up. Like it's, it's a bit crazy too. So, I mean, I would, there is, there's been definitely been a lack of responsibility taken. Absolutely. From the- there, there's no doubt. I mean, you, and there's so many cases where there was a lack of responsibility. We could take lead and paint as an example. Um, we, we've known lead is toxic for 5,000 years, and yet there was a concerted effort to put lead in paint. And even um, this has been written in the literature quite a bit that, that some of the paint companies wrote articles talking about how leaded paint was good for public health. And, mm. and it led to a generation of, of lead uh, poisoned children. And, and we knew, right, the UK and Australia banned lead and paint back in 1910, yet the lead industry in the United States pushed for lead and paint for decades um, and wasn't removed until the 1970s from paint in the United States. So, so there are many cases where we knew we just didn't act. I mean, too many of them, actually. I mean, if you look at... Um, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, written in 1962, and I teach it in in my classes. She was right. Uh, you know, we we don't tend to act on early evidence. We don't tend to apply the precautionary principle um, very often, and and maybe we need to more. Um, the challenge, of course, is once you've spent all of this money on building a chemistry, you want to have pretty good evidence before you actually remove it from the market. Um, you saw this with tobacco. You've seen this in so many cases where, where we, where we fight until tooth and nail until the evidence is so clear that we have to do something, and then it's too late. Yeah, I spoke to um, a friend of mine who's uh, very much into complexity sciences, and he's, he talked about the that's one of the challenges with evidence-based decision making, because in one way it makes perfect sense to want to have the evidence on the table before you make a decision, so that you know what you're dealing with don't want to deal in hypotheses and so forth. But on the other hand, that means that with some of these outcomes that we're looking at at the moment, um, which, which are sort of more uncertain, they're more probabilistic in nature, then um, we're going to have some really, really bad outcomes and decision that you would have wanted to make on the precautionary evidence that you had from labs and from scientists and so forth. They're moot. Like they're, they're not relevant anymore by the time you have the outcomes on a large scale so that you can prove that you needed to make the decision that you needed to make, you know, many, many years prior. Um, so there's, there's a real challenge in that. Um, yeah, it, it definitely. I mean, and, and we're trained in sciences, right? I'm trained as a health scientist. We're trained to have, you know, 95% certainty that our results weren't by chance alone. And mm-hmm. that 
leads to a very high bar for the science before we actually take action. Um, and, and it leads to long, long debates over how bad it is. Uh, I wrote an article about 10 years ago looking at bisphenol A, which is a chemical that's used in baby bottles, hard drinking, you know, those reusable drinking bottles and can linings, um, also in cash register tapes. And, and you look at the science, right? There was from 1950 to, 19, to about 2000, there were 50 articles in the literature about the hazards or the, the toxicity of BPA. Starting in about 2000, you went up into hundreds, if not thousands of articles. Same thing with some of the flame retardants, the polybrominated diphenyl ethers. You go from almost no literature to a lot of literature. And then you have these dueling scientists focused on, oh, what? how does it cause animals uh, harm in animals? Does it cause harm in humans? And, and all the while, even the scientists who thought BPA was the worst chemical in the world and those who thought it was the safest chemical in the world all said, well, we need more study because yeah. that's what we do in health sciences. We always say we need more study and more study doesn't solve the problems. I, I, you know, Going back to the phthalates, which are plasticizers, they make PVC plastic soft. And I worked on them, the phthalates and medical devices, IV bags back in the 90s. And we produced research that showed, you know, dating back to the 1940s, there was evidence that that certain phthalates could cause reproductive harm in animals and growing evidence of potential for causing cancer, other reproductive harm, respiratory harm. And our, our work led to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to issue a risk alert to say, yes, there is a risk. And 2017, one of the largest... Um, IV bag manufacturers in the U.S. said, well, you know, um, about 75% of the IV bags in the United States are still PVC with diethylhexyl phthalate, the most toxic of the phthalates. And mm. I thought the science was done. It, you know, it was clear back in 1998 that these chemicals needed to be replaced with safer alternatives. And we even found there were better alternatives. And I was in a meeting with a bunch of doctors and they said, oh, we just have to educate people. And I was like, no, no, we did that. We did that 20 years ago and it didn't solve the problem, right? So there's something standing in the way, right? Is it lack of regulation? Is it, is it that the alternatives cost more or, or you have to reformulate? So there's something standing in the way of the science getting translated into action. Um, and that's where, where we need you know, where we need to solve problems, right? Because we're never, we're, we're still debating, you know, certain chemicals that we've, you know, we thought were resolved 50 years ago, and we're still debating whether they're toxic. I mean, think about even tobacco, right? We were debating the health risks of tobacco exposure, which we knew back in the 1950s of the cancer risk. We were debating it until the 1990s. And we didn't even know the mechanism until the 1990s by which it caused cancer. But um, so we need to move from that problem space into the solution space um, more effectively. You know, an example I like to give is in Massachusetts, um, there's a chemical that's used in solvents like uh, degreasers, for example, called trichloroethylene. And we've known since the 1970s that it potentially can cause cancer. Um, liver cancer or other types of cancer and reproductive harm. And it's also found in a lot of hazardous waste sites. So a very famous hazardous waste site in Woburn, Massachusetts, that was the the focus of a movie that had John Travolta called A Civil Action. Um, mm -hmm. 
So we, we knew it was showing up in hazardous waste sites. We knew it was potentially problematic chemical. Um, and we knew it had a really important purpose in the metal finishing industry. For example, those making tools um, that, you know, when you cut the metal, you use oil. And then you needed to remove that oil from the part. So you use these very powerful degreasers, um, trichloroethylene being one of them. They work really well, but no one really wanted trichloroethylene per se. They wanted a good degreaser. And so we started at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell with um, an institute we have called the Toxics Use Reduction Institute, working with companies to find better alternatives. And we identified them. We tested them for these small companies. We helped them install the new equipment, which was primarily based on agitation, like shaking Mm -hmm. and water, right? Mm -hmm. Aqueous cleaners with vibration really got that oil off. And we reduced trichloroethylene use by 95% in Massachusetts. Never assessed the risk. And actually, EPA, the US EPA at the federal level, finished a risk assessment where they assessed the risk of trichloroethylene about five years ago. Mm-hmm. And what did they find? They found trichloroethylene is carcinogenic. Um, they didn't find out you know, much more, right? It's not what we did. We knew that 30 years ago. They knew a little bit more about how it caused cancer and what level of exposure was most important for cancer, but they didn't really know much more than we knew 30 years ago. And the EPA has yet to finish a regulation on trichloroethylene. And we're 30 years later. And if we just solved the problem, it would have yeah. saved industry money. It would have prevented cancers. It would have solved so many problems. Um, similar thing happened with another case in occupational health in um, a chemical called methylene chloride, which is another degreasing chemical. It's used to in uh, furniture refinishing and you know to strip the paint. It's a, a really good paint stripper. And um, OSHA, our Occupational Safety and Health Administration, in the 1990s went to regulate the exposure to it. And the industry that represents solvents, um, halogenated solvents, those would be ones that have chlorine or bromine, they fought it and said, well, the animal evidence isn't relevant to humans. How it causes cancer in animals, humans don't respond the same way. And they entered into a seven-year debate over the science. And, And all the while, while that science was being debated, OSHA didn't issue a regulation. There was no control over that chemical. And the estimate is that probably about 60 to 70 workers died as a result of the cancers caused by by that debate. And in the end, OSHA won. They issued a standard. And what happened was companies switched to the next solvent that they could find that worked similarly that wasn't regulated. And it turned out to be worse than the one that they were that they were getting rid of. And so OSHA spent seven years, you know, fighting the science. They, it led to a bad outcome when if they had spent those seven years helping companies find safer alternatives and switching to those safer alternatives, they would have saved a lot of money. They would have saved lives and they would have avoided a regrettable substitution. And again, in science, we like to fight the details rather than focus on the solutions. Right. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You know, because I mean, it points to it points to some some because, in a way, a lot of the when we are talking about regulation, we do need to be we need to have a pretty high bar for safety because otherwise, like you need to be pretty sure about what what you're actually regulating. But it doesn't necessarily mean that there is not reason to switch away from things, uh, regardless of that um, 
you know, certainty. Um, and so, because I'm, I'm thinking it'd be nice to kind of enter GC3 here, uh, the Green Chemistry and Commerce Council, um, and and the work that you're doing there, because I've, I find that to be very solutions oriented. And, and it is, like you say, like we have these functions that we need to, we might or might not, I should say, <laughs> need to uh, deliver into a product. Um, and and there is a discussion to be had, but how, how do you work with the GC3? Like what is the, yeah, how do you work? With right. it? <laughs> I mean, what we've tried to do is stay away from the debates over the science, right? The, the, the you know, those tend to be never ending debates. How risky is it? How bad is it? I mean, even you raised formaldehyde, there's still debates over whether formaldehyde causes cancer. I mean, in the scientific community, you know, the, the environmental health community, we, we don't believe there's any debate, but the industry still is debating, you know, well, how it causes cancer in rats isn't relevant to humans. Well, but if you take the epidemiology, the human studies, we, we have plenty of human studies that show an association between um, exposure to formaldehyde and certain cancers. The problem is we can't prove it. And that's where, you know, often we put this high bar on environmental health science that is the bar in chemistry or physics, right? We can't prove anything in what we do. We, we show associations and sometimes they're, they're not strong associations, they're associations, right? And we have to use that knowledge because the minute we have um, a strong epidemiological evidence, we've got dead bodies, right? You don't want your science to be about, you know, harm. You want it to be about preventing harm. And so um, the way we focus the GC3 is where, where we're really about chemical functions where there's innovation needed. So the retailers um, and the brands are at the front lines of consumer and market and regulatory concerns. So, you know, if I'm, for example, Levi's, um, I'm getting pressure from Greenpeace. I'm getting pressure from my consumers to get rid of PFAS, to get rid of certain other chemicals. And I need the value chain to be able to respond to me, to find those alternatives. So, so what we've done is ask the retailers, and the chemical industry said the same, don't tell us what you're against. Tell us what you want. What innovations you want? Well, we want better flame retardants. We want better uh, preservatives for consumer products. We want better coatings for fabrics that are water repellent or stain repellent. And, and that way, we shift it to a positive message. And we can set up those criteria for what's better. So we did this um, with preservatives in consumer products. One of the challenges is consumer products like soaps, detergents, some cleaning products, as we've you know, made them more friendly for air contaminants, um, we've made them more water-based. And when you have something that's water-based and you stick it in your shower, um, it can grow pathogens, right? It can grow bacteria, yeast, mold, things that can be dangerous when we put them on our body. So we want to make sure that the, the pathogens in those products are, are killed. So we add preservatives to those products. And those preservatives are essentially toxic chemicals, right? They kill stuff. That's their job. So, you know, the question then is how do you design preservatives that do their function but then don't have unintended toxicity that that we don't want for consumers. So we pulled together um, in in response to what we would say a shrinking number of preservatives that are under regulatory scrutiny or they're under market scrutiny, certain ones called parabens, which were linked to 
breast tumors in animals. Um, so, and, and consumers saying, no, I don't want any preservative that, any product that has parabens in it, right? That That's what consumers hear. They hear a chemical of concern, no parabens, no phthalates. I don't want this. And so there's a shrinking number of available preservatives and we need preservation. So how do we bring together companies to solve that problem jointly? So we brought together two major retailers, Walmart and Target, and then 11 brands. So they ranged from big ones like Unilever and Reckitt to um, and, and SC Johnson to small small ones like Method or Babyganics, all focused on how do we solve this problem of safe and effective preservatives for consumer products. So we first define the criteria. What, what does safe mean, right? What does a safer preservative need to demonstrate in terms of its toxicity? And then effective. What does it need to kill under what conditions? And how does it work? And what we did was we pooled resources and we did an open innovation challenge. We invited academics, uh, larger companies, startups to bring their best options that would meet these criteria to the table so that we could connect those innovators with these brands and retailers that could then scale those chemistries. And we also had six chemical suppliers because they're always looking for, for new innovations that they can license or they can buy. Um, so, so what we did was we created the ecosystem to solve a challenge, right? We need preservation in, in consumer products. Um, and that preservation doesn't necessarily only have to be a chemical. We opened it up. Most of our all of our submissions were chemicals, but that solution might be a different form of the product, right? A dry shampoo, for example, or a different packaging material that doesn't allow water to get into the vessel. All of those would have been within the context of preservation, the service, right? We want to make sure that microbes don't grow in those formulated products. And what it showed is that companies do want to work together in a pre-competitive space to solve problems they all share, right? It's much easier and much more effective, cost-effective, you know, effective in driving solutions to work together to solve those challenges. And that's that's where the GC3 finds its sweet spot is how do we solve problems together? Because bringing together the knowledge of 10 companies rather than the knowledge of one company helps expedite and accelerate that innovation focus. And again, we didn't focus on what we wanted to get rid of. We focused on what we want. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm also just imagining the bringing together the entire supply chain as well allows you to see things that you wouldn't be able to see on your own because you know very detailed what your own process looks like, what your own exposure looks like, what the own hazard sort of, you know, what the reasonable hazards are to take into account with regards to your process. But then things down the line, like other companies, other manufacturers, formulators, or even brands, I mean, it, it looks very different from there to, to also have that uh, understanding. Uh, part of, of the design process is probably, a, I mean, it sounds trivial, but it's not. <laughs> well, and understanding what the challenges they face. So we had one... Um, chemical manufacturer in the in our challenge program that had a solution that everyone was interested in and they ended up uh, uh, formulating it for food 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 preservation which is a much bigger market but what they found was a market that was much more willing to engage and commit showing demand but also commit financially to buying the products and they didn't see that same 
demand signal coming from the consumer products market. So they ended up going a different direction. So it allows us also to ask those questions of what is it going to take to get across the finish line? In the end, we identified a lot of really interesting um, preservation solutions, but none of them you know, they've been tried and a couple have done tests of them, but they haven't been adopted. And so there's another set of challenges around cost, demand signal, sharing of the reformulation. So identifying a chemical is one thing, but then that chemical has to be purposed for different formulations, right? It's it's not like you just add it in and everything's fine. You change one chemistry in a mixture of chemicals that is your shampoo, for example, and it could fundamentally change, for example, the color of the shampoo. Um, uh, this is uh, actually a, a case that was written up in the New York Times. So Johnson & Johnson went to remove a chemical of concern from their baby shampoo, their iconic baby shampoo, right? That golden color. And changing that one chemical uh, ended up changing the color of the shampoo. And that color, that golden color is the brand, right? Mm. So it took five years and millions of dollars to recreate that that golden color by ship, you know, just by shifting a chemical in the formulation, right? So so it isn't as easy as you just get a new chemical, you drop it in, and everything's hunky dory. There is a whole set of actions that have to happen to make that chemical work, whether it's in a shampoo or whether it's in a an electronic casing for my iPhone, right? That, that requires reformulation, and and there are all those steps that each step costs money, and there are other actors in that step, and and if they're resistant, or if they feel like they're not going to win economically, then they're gonna they're gonna push back. They're gonna say, nope, we're not doing it. So so that's where bringing everyone together in that chain from the chemical manufacturer to the product manufacturer to the retailer makes sense, right? I mean, the retailers are really about buying cheap, not necessarily buying sustainable. So, so it, you know, if I've got to go spend millions of dollars to reformulate my product and then the, the, the plastics molder has to spend money to retool their molds to make it, if, if the retailer is saying, no, I'm not going to pay anymore, well, why would I do it, right? I'm not going to lose money. This is, you know, you have to, this brings back the pragmatism of the GC3, right? We live in a capitalist system and everyone needs to win economically because you're not going to do it if you're not going to, if you're going to lose money. Right. right. And I mean, some of my frustrations around this have been a lot of the time. I've, it, I don't, of course, some of the reasons like the, these differences are, are really important, like with the color or like with the brand and so forth, like they might be, might or might not be really important. But in order like to have a forum where one can actually have those discussions about like, is this really the thing that we need to be right. focusing on right? Um, versus the other thing, which might be, you know, hazard or which might be something yeah. that yeah. seems more important. Yeah. Um, it's not easy to have those, especially right. not as a small company. It's not easy to have those discussions with a large company. But if you come, yeah. if the, there are several people around the table and if you have this type of discussion, and you can, then you can have it more a more objective discussion, I guess, right. and, yeah. and that's helpful. And this is where the public comes in too, right? Would the public have been upset if, you know, and, and, and this is an oversimplification, right? You know, would the public have been upset if their 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 
Johnson's baby shampoo were brown instead of golden color, right? Knowing that it didn't have a potential, a chemical of potential concern in it. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it's a conversation we haven't had. Uh, you know, there's always this expectation that the consumer wants this, the consumer wants that, you know, it has to be this way. Um, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe that's, if, if the consumers knew, if the public knew that, you know, if you want this, it's going to have that in it. Um, maybe they'd think differently. You know, I, I remember a few years ago, there was a whole debate about lead and lipstick and, oh, it's evil. You know, the, the cosmetics industry is putting lead and lipstick. Well, they weren't necessarily putting, it was a contaminant in certain pigments um, that were going to the lipstick to make a certain color. And, and I was talking with cosmetics companies who are like, oh, we just need to educate people. I was like, well, maybe, maybe you just need to be honest with the public and say, you want this color? It's going to have lead in it. We can't make it without lead. It's right. just lead is a contaminant in the pigment. And you want it, then this is what you're going to have. And I think the public would say, well, do I need that? Do I really need that color? I mean, this is where the European Union is starting to focus on this idea of essential uses, right? Do I really need it? Is this... Is, red, is this color red really necessary for my foundation? Is this golden color necessary for the shampoo to work? It's not. It's a, it's it's a it's a market, right? It's not. It's a it's a decorative issue rather than a functional issue. The shampoo works quite fine without that color, and so so I think there are those public conversations that have to happen. Um, it, it's a very hard one, right? You can't really go, would you, you know, you could do public opinion surveys. Actually, the Dutch did this. It's like, would you want your jacket to not have something that can poison the planet? And yeah, right. <laughs> of course, people are going to say yes to that. Of course, I don't want that. You know, yes, I want my water repellent jacket. But, and sometimes it's sort of silly, right? I remember an outdoor, uh, outdoor apparel company saying, well, you know, I, I live in, I live in Seattle. It rains a lot. And, and I want my bicycle to, uh, when I ride my bicycle in the rain, I don't want to get wet. And I was like, well, anyone who's ridden a bicycle in the rain knows that it can be as coated as you want, but that wheel's still going to spray water up your rear. And the best coating, best pants in the world are not going to keep you dry. I'm sorry. No, no, that's, yeah, that's it. Right. And, and, and so you what you get a little wet, big deal, you know. Right. It's, um, but you know, if I'm climbing up Mount Everest, th there's a life and death implication to my garment failing. Um, so, so it really is, you know, we need to have more public conversation about these issues because um, it shouldn't be thrown back on the consumer wants this, so, so we have to do this. Um, if the consumer knew, maybe they would think differently. Yeah, I think that's that's a really important one because I mean we've also seen it in the terms of flame retardants with with some sort of car manufacturers that we've been talking to, and then we said, okay, so now you can go out and basically say this is a safer flame retardant, and they were saying, mm -mm, no, we can't do that, and we're like, huh, okay, no, so that's not an argument. No, we can't use that argument because if we say that it's safer, then the consumer is going to ask, what was it before? We already assumed that it was safe. Like, what are you talking about? Like, why do we need to concern? Like, didn't you have our have our backs? And it's um, it is an interesting way of yeah reframing well, how you need to talk. It, to your client, I mean, customers. it's hard in a litigious world like in the United States. It's very hard to do that. But but I think it's perfectly fine to say based on what we knew at the time. Again, I don't think any company based on what they knew at the time maliciously said we're gonna 
put poison in our product. Um, I don't think that's the case. I think the issue is science evolves. And as we learn more, what do we do with that knowledge? And, um, and do we act on that knowledge? Do we move better solutions based on that knowledge? Or do we wait until the 11th hour when we're forced to do it? And that's, that's where the front runner, that's what distinguishes front runner companies from, you know, what I would say the followers is those front runners see what's ahead on the horizon and they, they act on it. They say, okay, the science is moving in this way. We're, we're going to move ahead of the science because we think it's the right thing and actually economically beneficial because we're going to be ahead of the curve and have the solution long before the others do. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Actually, what I, we talk about green chemistry and then you said uh, early on, you said something around natural and, and like natural doesn't necessarily mean safer. And what is the definition of green chemistry? So green chemistry is the design of, um, you know, chemicals, right? It's what chemists do. It's the design of chemicals that are less hazardous from their production through their disposal. So it's essentially at the molecular design level, designing out the hazards in the first place. So you identify what makes that molecule potentially benefit damaging and you design it out. So, so yes, you try to use renewable resources or renewable feedstocks. So, you know, plant matter, et cetera, to make that chemical, but it really is the design of that chemistry and doing it in a way that minimizes the potential impacts, minimizes the generation of waste and, and minimizes, you know, the, or increases the ability for that, um, product made out of the chemistry to be reused, recycled, or degrade at the end of its life. So um, it, it's a tool for chemists. It's not going to solve every problem, but it is a way of thinking about design. Most chemists were not trained in toxicology, right? They, they don't know any better about design. They're, they're trying to make something that's functional. And so, so they don't know what makes a chemical uh, dangerous. And it's pretty amazing, actually, to think about it, that um, that people making materials, right, plastics, whatever, that could affect millions of people don't have a clue about what makes it toxic. That, that's a mistake we made, right, that we didn't train chemists to understand the implications of what they were making. Um, and shame on any chemistry program that doesn't teach toxicology <laughs> now um, because it, it is really critical. And in fact, if you were to go into industry, industry – Companies, chemical companies want chemists who know something about toxicology because they want to start designing new chemicals. You know, it, this isn't about every new chemical that, you know, chemical industries are not everyone, but, but I would say chemical companies now have these stop criteria in their R&D processes where they start looking at the initial toxicology using computer models. And I said, if this looks like a problem, we're not going any further with this. So the problem isn't the new stuff coming on the market today for the most part. It's really all the stuff that's on the market that is, you know, integrated into global supply chains. It's in the products we use. It may not be regulated. It's optimized, right? We've learned over 30 years how to make stuff really effectively using chemistry. And the alternatives, we've got to figure it out. And it costs money. And 
if we're not putting the money into those solutions, we're probably not going to scale those solutions. But, but green chemistry really is about at that design phase. How do we design the molecules to be benign in the first place? Um, really nice example is, uh, for example, Valspar, which is um, a company that makes paints and coatings. They uh, well, they're part of Sherwin Williams now, but they designed an alternative to BPA for can linings and. What they did, it's, it's a remarkable story. So they took the bisphenol molecule and they said, okay, what, what is it that makes this a potential um, endocrine disruptor or it affects hormone, hormonal processes? And they identified the part of the molecule that does that and designed it out. And then what they did was, well, they knew that there would be a lot of critique of what they were making. Oh, this is another bisphenol. It's going to be endocrine disruptor. So they invited the top scientists in endocrine disruption, those who would be most critical of the science, to critique their science. They opened their science up and said, poke holes in our science. Tell us it's not an endocrine disruptor. And those scientists did the research and they said, nope, it's not an endocrine disruptor. So it was a really smart strategy of you know, designing out the problem at the molecular stage, but then getting verification by those most critical of what you're doing. And I think we should see more of that, that the chemical industry should be much more open to failing fast, getting feedback from those who would be most critical of their science, not going to the scientists who will tell them what they want to hear, but going to the scientists who will be critical and saying, how do we, because that's a trust building, right? If there is a lack of trust in the chemical industry, the best way to build trust is to be transparent and to go to those who will be critical of you, not those who will tell you what you want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, excellent. so there's yeah. plenty of examples of green chemistry that I think are really good, but, but again, it, it, it doesn't necessarily only have to be natural. I'll give you the example of, um, you know, experiment my kids did on themselves when they were probably three and four, they were, in the bathtub one day and I, you know, we had an air freshener that was based on citrus. It's a, what a chemistry called terpenes, um, which are often used in solvents, degreasers, air fresheners. So it's that orange scent and it's natural. It's orange peel derived. And I knew that it, it, it was a eye irritant. I knew that. Um, but my, my younger son sprayed it in the bathtub and I was like, okay, watch your brother. Don't get in his eyes. And my kids started breaking out rashes and you know they sprayed very little but it turns out it didn't mix in the water because it was it was it was oil based so it didn't mix in the water and they got it all over the skin it caused a severe allergic reaction and it was so little it was like a couple sprays of the stuff but the these chemistries the terpenes are are sensitizers they're skin sensitizers they cause an allergic reaction they're all natural but they're they're pretty toxic and so you know it doesn't mean natural doesn't mean non-toxic. It, it means natural. It means derived from a biological product, right? From plant matter, right? Um, so, so we don't all have to be against anything synthetic, right? Human made, right? It's, it's not one or the other. So I think it is really about being safe and sustainable, right? What does it do to affect the climate? What does it do to affect natural resources? What does it do to um, affect water and air? And, and all of those are important. So it's not just if I buy natural products, I'm going to be healthier and safer. It's, it's, you got to look at 
whether they're also safe natural products. I'm thinking of starting to round off. And I'm wondering, like, so people that listen to this are probably not chemists, most of them, uh, nor are they product designers, um, but they are, I mean, they are consumers in one way or the other. What what are the ways or like, what would be the sort of the top three tips for a consumer to get informed on the chemical? So so to, to reduce some of the fear, because I, I think we have enough of fear in, in society. So to reduce some of the fear and to be pragmatically but still constructively sort of approaching these issues? What would you say? Sure. I, I think it's asking questions, right? If you have questions, look at the labels, right? There are certain eco-labels um, that will, you know, a third-party verified eco-label, not something that some company just plasters on their label to say, we're non-toxic, because how do you know that? Unless it's a trusted brand, like EcoRare, you know, is a trusted brand. You know what they're doing. Um, but I think finding legitimate third-party eco-labels is powerful because I can tell you that someone has looked at that product and said, it's safe, it's effective. Um, that That's one way. Ask questions, right? If you have a concern, go to the brand and ask a question about, well, I read about this chemical in this product. Can you tell me more about what you're doing to minimize its use? Consumers have an incredible, or a retailer, consumers have an incredible influence over brand and retailer decisions. And it's really important to ask those questions. Transparency is really key. Knowing what's on it, what's what's in it. Um, you know, we, we know that unfortunately, right, no one's going to read a thousand chemical label, but that's where label, that's where eco logos come in really handy is like, I can buy something that has the, the Nordic Swan. And, and I know that it's, it's probably a better product because someone has assessed it and evaluated it who's independent of the company that's making the product. Um, and then there are certain apps. There, there's um, a couple of apps that have come out. Um, Ask Reach is one um, where you can go in and on the barcode of a product, just scan it and say, does it? And there's several of these that um, you can look at the product and say, does this have any chemicals of concern in it that I should be avoiding. Um, there's another tool called, I believe, Clearia that that um, you it's an add-on to your browser that then searches through uh, Amazon and and allows. And then there are NGOs like Environmental Working Group in the United States that rank products based on their hazards. So so a third party, an independent nonprofit that's looking at these, saying, you know, these ones look better. These ones look more problematic. But I think it's avoiding the fear. You know, fear is often um, fear is, is is paralyzing in some ways, right? It, it, in some ways, we should just be angry that these chemicals are in products that our children are using, and say, no, it shouldn't be that way. So, you know, we all are citizens too. We vote, and voting for candidates that say, I care about the environment. I want to do policy that protects health in the environment, right? So that's that's an important way that consumers can be active. But I think really asking a lot of questions, getting to knowledge, and then also assuming that companies are not trying to hurt us and that we're not going to live in a chemical-free world. There's no such thing as chemical-free cosmetics. Um, so this is where really we need to increase STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math education, so that we do have a an educated uh, electorate around science. Um, you know, the, the the chemophobia. There was an article in Nature um, 
it was in nature chemistry about chemophobia in Europe. And it's like 40% of Europeans are afraid of chemicals, want to avoid chemicals altogether. I, I, I think what that says is the, the industry needs to do a better job of showing its, you know, what it's doing to uh, protect health in the environment, of acting of not defending problem chemicals when they, when they, when there are concerns about them, but saying, here's what we're going to do. Here's, you know, and this is the advice I've given to the chemical industry over the years is, is focus your attention on solutions, what you're doing to drive better chemistry. And I understand that you need to, you, if you don't have a solution, it's really hard to not defend the incumbents, but you know, but you can stop defending them. So, and I've spoken with um, several companies that will, you know, as they're developing better alternatives, they stop defending the incumbents and say, okay, this isn't defensible. We, 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 we don't have an alternative. So we're going to continue to sell it and be as safe and safe as we can with it. Um, But we know we need to move away from it because those timelines are long, right? Developing and adopting new chemistries is a, five to 10 year time frame. So, so assuming that we're just going to get rid of it overnight just is a, is a bad assumption. So, um, but we need to put that pressure on now to start that process. And so for your, your listeners, I think it's just asking questions and finding good, solid source of information from government, from nonprofits, um, and, you know, getting as knowledgeable as you can. I mean, and, um, and knowing that no one's out there to, no one's out there to poison you. Right. Right. And I was going to add, like, I was also thinking of this, just sort of kind of using a little bit of common sense. Like if you are getting a jacket to go and and pick up your kid at preschool and and so forth, maybe you don't need to get sort of the most hardcore sort of water protection membrane or whatever it might be. You might want to... just be be aware that there are costs that come to some of these decisions, and so right. if you want to, like, you might want to think yeah. about which functions you need, and yeah, which are exactly nice to have. and ask some of those questions, right? Like, I I moved into a house um, about fifteen years ago where the people had sprayed the foundation of the house with pesticides every year, mm. and it wasn't clear what they were spraying for. They just did it because they didn't want to have bugs around, insects around, and. I, you know, and they sprayed the lawn to make it nice and green and, you know, beautiful. And I was like, well, I don't need this. And I didn't, I had an ugly lawn. I had ants in the house, but I controlled them, you know, in very specific ways. So I think it's really thinking about too, is like, what can I avoid? What do I, what do I not need to, you know, so that was how I did it with my kids. It's like, I knew pesticides were toxic and I didn't want to expose my children to pesticides. So I didn't use them. Um, and there, as you said, there, there's ways to do this, that very obvious things we can just avoid and, and not, not use. Cool. Thank you, Joel. This is fun. And, and, um, if people want to find you or if you want to provide some online resources, I can put the links in the, in the show notes. Is there something you want to point to why they should find you and uh, where in that case? Yeah, I mean, I I can certainly give a, a few tools. Our, our Toxics Use Reduction Institute at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell has a lot of resources on safer alternatives to chemicals of concern in different products. There's a number of NGOs or non-governmental organizations that have resources, and I can provide links to those. And then, obviously, we're always wanting to engage with companies to that that are looking for or designing 
you know, green chemistry solutions to help them get those into products and, and work through the value chain. So we're happy to, always happy to work with companies like Paximer and you've always been a champion of our work, Amit. So happy to, happy to engage those who want to join with us. Um, In the end, I think, you know, I, I'm an optimist and I believe that we can solve these chemicals problems. Um, We certainly have a challenge right now where we're hitting what, what's called the planetary boundaries for chemical pollution. And it doesn't have to be that way. I, I think that's the, you know, we can make products that are safe and effective without causing challenges to our health. And that's what, what GC3 and my work at the university is always focused on. Yeah, fantastic. And I mean, you're based in the US, but the GC3 is now in Europe and in the US uh, at least. Correct. And, and yep. So you can yep. become a member. So if you, you're interested, um, at least reach out to me or Joe. We'll, we'll figure that out. All right. Thank you, Joe. Thanks so much, Amit.